0: For IEHP, cost was not the issue. I mean, I I would be totally happy if the costs were the same because we were investing more on, in medication, we are investing more in primary and specialty care, we are investing more in social determinants help. I'd be happy if the costs were neutral and quality of life and health was improved.
1: I'm Claudia Williams, and this is The Other 80, a podcast about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. We know that only about 20% of overall health is determined by medical care. We're here to talk about the other 80%, access to nutritious food, our relationships with each other, safe and comfortable housing, and so much more. Healthcare makes up 20% of the American economy, Historically, most of this was spent on medical services, but now we're seeing new models and policies, especially in Medicaid, that are substituting housing, food, and other social services for medical care. That's why I was so excited to talk to our guest today, Dr. Bradley Gilbert. He served as the CEO of one of the nation's largest Medicaid-managed care plans, and led the Medicaid program in California. In both roles, he pioneered whole-person health models. A big part of this conversation focused on housing. In 2018, IEHP, that's the Inland Empire Health Plan, invested 30 million of its own resources into housing for its members. This program was a template for California's CalAIM program, which is now providing housing, food, and other social benefits to Medicaid enrollees. Let's define a couple of terms before we get started. Medi-Cal is the name of the Medicaid program in California. The Department of Healthcare Services, or DHCS, oversees it. And cal CalAIM is the program Medi-Cal is implementing to provide food, housing, and other social supports in lieu of medical services. Okay, let's dive in please welcome Dr. Bradley Gilbert. So thanks so much for joining and let's scroll back a little in time. I know when I first met you, one of the things I was so excited about and impressed about was the way in which you thought about the role of IHP, Inland Empire Health Plan, in the community. And so the listeners here don't know about IHP necessarily. And I'd love to have you describe what's really special and unique about that organization and the community. What should folks know about Inland Empire Health Plan?
0: Well, a couple of things. I mean, one is we're a funny entity. So we're what's called we were what's called a joint powers agency, which was created by Riverside and San Bernardino counties, which by the way. San Bernardino is the largest county in the United States and Riverside's the 14th largest, not in population, but in geography. And they're both large counties population wise. So the two boards of supervisors in those two counties created us. And so we really were part of the community in the county from the beginning. And so our mission was always about not just providing care for the individuals enrolled in our health plan, but really heavily engaging with the community, you know, community business organizations, nonprofits, but also the two counties. So the county behavioral health departments, the county public health departments, that was our mission and focus from the very beginning. Yes, we had to provide health care for what ultimately was, you know, 1.4 million people. But really, we started with this total orientation about we are here to serve the community And of course, those members enrolled with the health plan.
1: And talk a little bit about the community itself. Like who lives there? What what are these counties like?
0: They're fairly diverse um, and they're not, I wouldn't call them high income counties. I mean, they do have pockets of, you know, individuals that that make above median income, but there's a large number of Medi-Cal patients. There's a large number of undocumented individuals, particularly in Riverside County, but some in San Bernardino. So it's a very diverse population, not as diverse as in L.A. or San Francisco, but, you know, large Latino population, large Vietnamese population, and then a smattering of, you know, Russians and all sorts of, you know, other communities. And so that was a key part as well, is how do we reach into those communities, the African-American, the Latinx, you know, to be able to engage our members and the community where they are? So we just had lots of connections to churches, to, as I mentioned, CBOs, to other entities that served members of the community. We connected them and connected with them um, to make sure we really could work well with the community and, and our members.
1: And one of the things that really struck me when I came to California that was different from a lot of other places is especially with these local health plans like IHP, the membership doesn't change a lot. You don't have people moving from one plan to the next to the next because you're providing most of the Medicaid coverage for county members, right? So you have an ability to invest and kind of do things in a durable way, not worrying so much about whether your member might be only with you for six months. And I think that's really remarkable and kind of, isn't the case in a lot of other states and communities across the country.
0: No, it's a great point. It's a great point because we had about 90% of the membership, but you're right. There wasn't a lot of churn. People would lose eligibility and then they would come back on. But your point is we could take the long view that we didn't have to think of it as let's get immediate results because that helps us financially. We didn't have to think like that. We could truly think as a not-for-profit to say, we can do long-term investments in the community. At one point, I want to talk about our housing investment, because that was a big investment that is forever. I mean, meaning we house people, we're going to pay rent as long as they're alive and in that, you know, in that housing. And so we could think like that exactly to your point of long-term change versus what typically, I mean, typically health plans tend to think short-term, because that's the window of them making an intervention. And realizing benefit. I mean benefit both, you know, health-wise and financially.
1: So let's talk about housing. And if I remember right, you guys made a $30 million investment out of your own bottom line, out of your own pockets. What inspired that? Like what were the kinds of stories you were hearing from the community that made you think, gosh, we have to go well beyond medical care? And then let's talk in a minute about the structure of the program.
0: I mean, we realized if someone is homeless it's very, very, very difficult to make any kind of progress for them in terms of their health because they have, you know, it's Maslow's hierarchy. I mean, they were focused on, you know, food, shelter, their form of shelter, being homeless, and, you know, couldn't make appointments, couldn't take medicines, couldn't think about their health. And so as we interacted with those members, we kept seeing we're not going to make a difference unless we do something different, That was one group. And then the other group was, as we became responsible for long-term care in 2014, it became very obvious that there were people in those facilities that did not need to be there. They didn't need to be there medically. They didn't need to be there socially. They were fully capable of living in the community. Who wants to live in a skilled nursing facility? Nobody wants to live there. So those two populations really made us step back and think, We need to provide housing, not only housing navigation assessment and transition, but we need to literally provide housing. And that was something totally unique. As you know, Health Plan of San Mateo was doing it up north for skilled nursing facilities. Pretty much no one else was doing it. And so, as you said, we went to our board and said, we want $30 million to really, you know, invest in and deliver housing. And the board said, go for it. I mean, they There was a five minute discussion Um, because, you know, of course, we presented data that permanent supportive housing can make a difference in terms of people's health. The cost question is still out there a little bit, you know, in terms of whether you really save money, but it clearly impacted people's health, which is what we're there for. So it was really based on us interacting with members, hearing from housing providers, you know, the struggle to get people housing and then realizing we had these populations that could really benefit And so we said, let's do it. Dr. Jennifer Sales was a really important part of that as our CMO. But, you know, between her and myself and, you know, our CFO and other members of our team, we said, this should be part of our mission. So we did jump into it well before CalAIM and the discussions about, about, you know, that being coming in the future. So we went into the community and found housing partners. In fact, in one case, we found a housing partner from the Bay Area that was also in L.A., but mostly, we used local housing experts who knew navigation, who knew tenancy support, and then we used that um, one from the Bay Area to actually find housing. So we set up a we set up a pool of funds that could be used for rent or first months, you know, rent or whatever, um, and went from there. It worked pretty well. It really worked pretty well.
1: I was listening and preparing. I was listening to an interview you did um, that had J.C. Cooper in it. And she was describing a visit she made, uh, I think it was in 2018, to the Inland Empire to see what you guys had done. And I, I believe that was one of the pieces of genesis of Kaleem. I'm curious what results you shared with her. What are What were the impacts you were starting to see that really motivated you to invite them down to see what was going on? And what Bring us into that conversation. What did you guys talk about?
0: It was very cool. So because DHCS had never visited us. I mean, we'd never had a visit. And
1: DHCS, just for the listeners, that's the medical program, the Medicaid program, right?
0: Yeah, the Department okay. of Health Care Services. So, so yes, they visited us to do audits, right. but they never visited us to just learn about what we were doing. So we were very excited. So at that point, Claudia, it was mainly anecdotal. So we were able to give examples of individuals we moved out of skilled nursing facilities that had been there for years, years, and didn't need to be there. I mean, clearly. And so we moved them safely to either a you know, residential center for the frail elderly or assisted living, or even to apartments. We moved people to apartments and then you know, paid the rent. There wasn't a lot of hard data at that point because this was early in the program. But at the point with JC, it was showing them what we were doing how we were partnering with community providers, to your point, and some of the anecdotal successes we had. I mean, we housed a homeless family that was living in a car. We, you know, we housed individuals from skilled nursing facility and people from the street and and were able to put them safely in housing. And our recidivism rate was virtually zero. I mean, we were not seeing people either, you know, bouncing back to the skilled nursing facilities or failing, we had some failures in the housing of homeless um, for a variety of reasons, but it was very low. So we're able to give her that anecdotal information and let her know that that was critical. That that for the people we're talking about, that housing piece was critical uh, to to making any difference. To making any difference, and I think that really impressed her with not only the plan having made that investment, but but really giving her those anecdotes to say. J.C., aim has to be broader than just enhanced care management, you know, medical stuff.
1: So let's talk a minute about the results you ended up seeing later. What were the results you started to see after some time? Yeah.
0: So the RAND Corporation did a, did a matched cohort study of individuals. Uh, this was just in homeless individuals, so it was not um, skilled nursing facility transfers. So they looked at it six months before and six months prior, which is not long enough. I mean, that's one of the faults of that study was, we, you know, we wanted it done early, but it's too short. So what it showed was the individuals that we housed quickly had a significant drop in their overall costs. These homeless individuals were costing anywhere from fifty dollars to $100,000 a year with Medi-Cal dollars. I mean, that's really quite significant in terms of ER use, hospital use, et cetera. So the ones that were housed quickly had a significant drop in in costs so less hospitalizations less ED. The ones that took a long time to house which was sometimes the case, they didn't see a big difference.
1: And from what I'm seeing in the literature, um there are a mix of results on the cost savings around um things like housing and food support. Uh, two things I've noted in looking at that literature, one it also depends on how broadly you look at the outcomes. Like if you look at a broad spectrum of social outcomes that aren't just medical costs, the benefits are shown to be much higher. And also just the human benefit. Obviously, if you're a human being <laughs> and you're able to get the support you need to live in a safe, um, comfortable place, that has immeasurable human impact. So it's kind of an interesting area that I think we'll continue to watch is how do we evaluate the impact? How broadly do we look at the results? And how do we not, like, fail to, to capture the the impact on the on the people, on the members that are actually benefiting from the programs?
0: No, it's a great point because I agree with you. When I've looked at the literature, it's, it's it's mixed at best. But but if you think of quality of life, I mean, I'm living in a bed in a nursing home or I'm homeless on the streets and then I have a stable housing situation, except for people that kind of fail that, I, I, quality of life has to be better. I mean, and, and certainly anecdotally, that's what we hear, you know, heard from from the, from the members we are involved with. The second is health status. But you know, that takes time. I mean, that really does take time. Diabetes control or hypertension control or whatever. That takes time. And as you know, for IEHP, cost was not the issue. I mean, I I would be totally happy if the costs were the same because we were investing more on, you know, in, in medication, we we're investing more in primary and specialty care, we we're investing more in social, you know, social determinants help. I'd be happy if the costs were neutral and quality of life and health was improved. So so uh, to me that's not the focus. I mean, yes, you want to know that over time those investments, you know, pay off. But I think you have to look at a really pretty significant time frame and most of the studies I've seen are probably shorter than, than is needed.
1: So I'm going to give a little setup here for a conversation about CalAIM. Um, so CalAIM is the Medicaid program in California that is allowing plans and other community providers to provide what I think of as social care. It's housing, food, other kinds of supports in lieu of medical care. So in lieu of services are the those kinds of social care services that are provided to support the member. And then in addition is providing really deep care coordination that allows Um, An organization or a, a partner to look broadly at all those services the member's getting and really make sure those gaps are filled and that it's an integrated, continuous kind of experience. So that's a really new direction for a Medicaid program. How is it that California was able to get approval to pay for social care, substituting for medical care? Kind of what does this look like from a policy perspective, if you think about it as a Medicaid program and being a partnership with the federal government?
0: Yeah, so so you mentioned it. It's this in lieu of services concept, which is allowable under the Medicaid program. New York's doing it. Some other states are doing it. And of course, California's doing it in a big way. With CalAIM. And so they've renamed it community supports, but really it's in lieu of services, meaning that you provide a service, whether it's housing navigation, housing transition, housing tenancy, medically tailored meals, as you mentioned, personal care services beyond, you know, the normal Medi-Cal covered personal care services, home modifications. I mean, there's a a list, you know, of, of many things. The theory is by providing them, you avoid other typical Medi-Cal costs and utilization. So easy one, easiest one, moving somebody out of a SNF. So you're taking them out of paying for a SNF day to by providing housing navigation and tenancy and finding them housing, you're providing those services so they don't have to be in the nursing home. Really easy one. Medically tailored meals. Diabetic that can't is unable to really you know control their diet. If you're able to provide them a good diet through medically tailored meals, in theory you can you know change the course of their diabetes, resulting in less you know ERUs, possibly inpatient, and of course the you know morbidity and mortality from diabetes. And same for hypertension, of course. So so the theory is is that you use these more socially based activities and services. So that they don't utilize, you know, services that particularly emergency department and inpatient, but even, you know, primary care and specialty care, probably more specialty care. So it's complicated in the sense of trying to, you know, show the return directly. Pretty easy with the SNF example, more difficult with, you know, home modification or, you know, medically tailored meals or even personal care services and respite care. It's just more difficult to do that direct link. I'm a believer because the fact is that the issues for our members, Medi-Cal members, Medicaid members, go beyond just medical care. And medical care doesn't have all the answers.
1: What do you think are the biggest challenges to really implementing this kind of program at a statewide level in a a state as diverse as California? In what ways were plans ready for this? What are the challenges? I'm just curious about your perspective.
0: It's a great point because everything is local. It's funny because I was just on a phone call with a health plan talking about spending incentive money to drive community supports. Very specifically, it's really hard because in some cases there's literally no resources in the community. One example, just a specific example, sobering centers. Really a good a really good program and service that, that ultimately helps people with their you know, alcohol substance use as an entry point, right? So instead of going to the ER and basically being given a phone number, maybe you go to a sobering center, you're hooked up to resources, you get what you need You know, in theory, et cetera. Well, most counties in California don't have sobering centers. So physical facility, program, staffing. So it's not like you just say, hey, sobering centers are now, you know, eligible for funding under community supports, you have to know what's available locally to be able to then deliver those services. There may be counties that don't have a lot of, you know, entities providing housing support. And as we talked about earlier, health plans don't know how to do that. I mean, they don't. And so it's really a question of what's available, what resources are there, what can you build on, for example, Um, and what has to be almost started de novo, which is very complicated. So, So one of the things that I think, you know, the state's, I think, been a little frustrated at the pace of growth, you know, in both enhanced care management, which is the, you know, very specialized intensive care management you referenced, but also community supports. It takes time. I mean, even with IEHP that had those prior connections, ramping up has taken some time. And so, So to me, Claudia, it's all about what's available locally for the health plans to, you know, who to partner with. And then when there's literally nobody, how do you get that started? Do you bring in outside entities to help you? Do you develop it yourself? You know, do you actually bring in the expertise? That takes time, energy, staffing, et cetera. So your point, 58 counties, they're all different. They're very diverse. Their their resources are very different from Alpine County to Los Angeles. So to me, the real challenge has been what's available for plans, you know, who and what is available for plans to partner with. And when that's available, it's been more successful.
1: One of the audiences for this podcast are companies that are looking to, you know, either innovative new service companies or technology companies or startups or you name it that are, I think, really seeing the need for services in the mental health, substance use, care coordination, housing referrals, social referral space, and on some level, are sitting on the sidelines because they find that Medicaid is hard to work with because it's just different state to state. A, where do you see the opportunities? You you mentioned a couple. You mentioned asthma remediation and sobering centers. What other areas do you think are ripe for more capacity? And B, Like, what advice would you give those companies?
0: Yeah. So so it's hard because I see kind of two different levels of potential support. So one is technology. I mean, By January of 24, all of the plans have to have closed loop referral systems for all of their referrals. So think about that. Social services, WIC, mental health. I mean, the list of potential referrals for members, job training, you know, is really long. And those entities don't talk to each other. I mean, obviously, you and I could go on about, you know, health information exchanges and, you know, data transfer. But this is a whole new, you know, set of, entities and providers that have to connect. And so I, I think that's more of a kind of technological solution that I think outside entities could help with for sure, because homegrown is not quite there yet, although it's it's growing as you and I both know very well. The second part I think is harder, actually delivering services in a county. So like you said, standing up asthma remediation or standing up a sobering center, that's harder because you really have to get in there locally. So I see that as the challenge, because if you're going to go, you got to go in locally.
1: Looking at this new world of Calim and and extrapolating that to other states where I think the Medicaid programs are doing similar things with social care, what are the opportunities for health information exchange organizations looking to meet both the needs of members, the needs of plans, and the needs of state Medicaid programs? Where do you see, what are some of the things they should be looking to innovate in from your perspective?
0: I, I mean, I, 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 as you know, I'm a huge believer. I think HIEs have a real opportunity around this greater referral process. But where it really needs to go is all the data about a member. So are they getting WIC? Are they getting, you know, food support? Are they getting other social services services so that if I'm a physician or I'm a care manager or I'm anybody in the system, I'm able to see what's happening with this member. So, I mean, a concrete example, patient comes into me and I'm talking to them. They're, They're a pregnant woman or they're a woman with small children. And I'm talking to them about making sure they're eating right, particularly with their children. And I say, are you on WIC? And they go, I don't know what WIC is, or maybe I'm on WIC. I should be able to see that. I should be able to see that they're enrolled with WIC, and so that I can talk to them about that. Um, or if they're not, I can I can immediately figure out how to do a real referral, a real referral, not a here's a phone number, call them, so that we could get that member that service or whatever service we're talking about. You know, so so to me, HIE's potential you know capacity and capability to provide that closed loop referral system. I can tell you in California. It doesn't exist. I mean, it just doesn't, and I and people are struggling, you know, because I'm still involved in in some work around that. So to me, that's a real opportunity is to really expand the thinking to to consider. Now, of course, that's a huge challenge, as you know, because a you know regulatory regulations and laws about sharing data, but two is incredibly disparate systems. You know, technology should be doable, though. Should be doable. Yeah. Um,
1: Interesting. Well, great, uh, great flag for my colleagues in the HIE space. Um, I think we're drawing to a close and I have two standard questions I'll ask us. The first is, what's a leadership lesson you learned the hard way?
0: Politics matter and politics can impact both positively and negatively. So give you two examples. So a good example from IEHP was, you know, having a board that understood and believed in the, our mission is why when I went and asked for $30 million, they said yes within five minutes of, you know, discussion. State, you know, the politics of, of the department and the governor and, and all of those things, and sometimes I thought got in the way of, of you know, making the right decisions. Um, and so understanding the politics and being able to work with them to get done what you need to do was an interesting leadership lesson I had at the state because it had always worked for me locally. Always worked. I never had, I mean, I can count on one hand issues I had that I had to work through, you know, with IEHP. Very different at the state. And so, you know, understanding that and being being aware of that, because ultimately. You want to get done what you want to get done. Calain being a great example, the department had to go and convince the Department of Finance that this was a good idea. And they did, to their credit, which is incredible. I heard about these marathon meetings, you know, particularly in lieu of services. I mean, you can imagine, Claudia, trying to convince the Department of Finance that in lieu of services made sense. Not easy because, they, they you know, oh, yes, we'll do this and we'll save you money with really no proof of that, just, you know, to start with. So, so being aware and kind of, so that was kind of my, one of my big lessons.
1: And what I hear you say is politics is you have to understand and work within it. And there's no silver bullet. If you understood one environment, that doesn't mean the same approaches will work in, in the other. Um, right.
0: no, exactly. Yeah. Very,
1: very good. And that's
0: one. That's one. And then the only other thing I would say is relationships matter. Relationships across all levels, relationships, you know, down to your staff, relationships across to providers. And when I was at the department, you know, relationships with key people, you know, in in government and relationships with the plans, which I had, you know, those really matter. And that could overcome a lot of the other issues, you know, some of the politics and difficulties because you have trust and credibility within those relationships.
1: And my final question is, what's a question you wish I had asked, and what would your answer have been?
0: I think it's I mean, we got to the data piece, which I thought was really important because you know everything you can't take care of a member without understanding kind of who they are and what services they're getting and and what they need. We did talk a lot about enhanced care management, which is one piece of the puzzle for the very high risk is as, as you said, really making sure we're providing intensive, integrated, organized care management and services for for high-risk individuals. These are very high-risk individuals that are part of ECM. And that is a key part because that often then drives, which you mentioned, delivering community supports and, and other services that are needed because you're able to really assess that member. So that assessment piece and understanding the member's needs is something we didn't spend a lot of time talking about. But it's where it all starts. Is where it all starts.
1: Listen, I hope we can see each other in person at some point. And um, thank you so much.
0: Let me know what happens with this and send me the link. This is fun.
1: Okay. It is super fun. Thanks so much. Bye. I am so grateful to Dr. Gilbert for sharing his insights. His bottom line is really important. We should provide housing, food, and other services because they are good for people, not just because they save money. Full stop. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery moore I've included some important resources in the show notes, including an evaluation of IHP's housing investment and an overview of CalAim. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests at our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams.